1: Everybody, welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow
2: and I'm Derek Lavasser.
1: Okay, so we're diving into part three of the Michelle Lawless case. Do you have anything you want to talk about before we dive in? Because I think we have a longer episode today, which is my hint to tell you we shouldn't talk about anything before.
2: We should not talk about anything. Are we? Let me just ask you a question Are we going to have a moment? tonight to maybe address the, again, how did Michelle get out of the car? Because all I want to say, and I will, let me just say this quick and we don't have to address it again because it's something that our editor, Shannon, brought to my attention first for this episode as she was editing last week's episode. And then ironically, you guys mentioned it in the comments, so kudos to you. But just to throw one other wrinkle out there, Shannon and many of you suggested that maybe another theory for looking at alternate theories that Michelle was stopped by someone who was a cop or was pretending to be a police officer. It would explain her being at the car, her having her dome light on, her rolling down the window. Again, total speculation, total theory, but shout out to Shannon and the rest of you who said it in the comments because I didn't think about it. And uh, it's when we're thinking about all the scenarios, that out-of-box type thinking is what can sometimes solve a case. So kudos to everybody out there. That's all I wanted to say
1: um yeah i mean that i saw that theory uh in the comments there's just nothing to back that up right you know so well, it's same thing like, with
2: my theory about the peeing in the side of the row it's just it's just a theory yeah it's just a theory
1: it's speculation um yeah it's possible but, of course but, but
2: shout out to all of you i'm glad you guys got your, your thinking caps on it's what we like to see
1: So before we dive in, I did want to mention two sources that I've been using to put this series on Michelle Lawless together, Um, because unfortunately, there just isn't a lot about Michelle. Like, there's a lot of current stuff, you know, after the case got reopened, after – the, the newer kind of regime of law enforcement took a look at it and they were like uh we, we gotta open this back up so there's more like current stuff but there's not a lot from that time so these two resources have been invaluable to me and I highly suggest that if anybody's interested in this case learning more or diving deeper you go and check them out the first would be the lawless files podcast which I've mentioned multiple times throughout this series this is a podcast done by Bob Miller I've also been talking to Bob. He's been very helpful in, you know, anytime I have questions, getting right back to me. So thank you, Bob. Shout out to you. Amazing podcast. Uh, check that out. We also have the book, which is titled The Murder of Angela Michelle Lawless, An Honest Sheriff and the Exoneration of an Innocent Man. This book is written by Stephen Snodgrass, a lawyer, and then also Joshua Keezer who, as we know, is the person who was put into prison wrongly for Michelle's murder. So these have been in resources. You can find the book on Amazon. I actually bought it on uh, Kindle, and then I have a hard copy, too, so that I could kind of refer to it wherever I was and whenever I needed to. And like I said, these two resources, the uh, Lawless Files podcast and this book, have been invaluable to me throughout this time putting these, these series together. All right. So let's dive right in. Uh, We kind of left off last episode talking about a lot about Michelle's diary and the different men that she was dating, seeing kind of what she was up to in the days, weeks and months before her death. And we talked about how Michelle wrote about Leon Lamb in her diary quite a bit. She also wrote about Lyle Day and, you know, a few other boys here and there. Like there was someone named Greg that she wrote about kissing on July 20th, and she said she felt like it could have been love, but she never mentions him again. But there's more than one entry in Michelle's diary about someone named Mark, and Michelle never gives a last name, but her diary entries do give us some context, some information to help us piece together whether or not this mystery Mark could in fact be Mark Abbott, which would suggest that Mark Abbott and Michelle Lawless did in fact know each other before her murder, even though he claims they did not. On July 2nd, Michelle wrote, quote, Put money in the bank and got a new outfit. Spending night at Laura's. Went and saw Jocko and went to Crackle. Met a guy named Mark. Got stuck in Cape. Our telephone pole was on fire when we went back to our house. It's been storming. End quote. On August 6th, she wrote, quote, went to work after came home and Laura came over. She went with me to class. Eric Almer taught. Sexy. Went to Crackle. Took Mark and Jacko home. Kissed and he asked me out. Went back to Crackle and then went home. End quote. On August 30th, Michelle wrote, quote, went to work after came home and practiced with dad. We sang tonight at church. Took Mickey cake and Lauren rode with me to Mark's to give him his. Went back to Mickey's and played D&D. End quote. And then finally on September third, Michelle wrote, quote, went to class in Taekwondo, Laura worked out, left and went to Marks and Crackle, saw Dana, she got kicked out, stayed at Marks. End quote. Now, these diary entries may have remained completely obscure, if not for the hard work of Bob Miller of the Lawless Files podcast, who tracked down a few people that Michelle had mentioned in these journal entries to get some clarifying information about who this mystery Mark could possibly be. Miller says that in the case files, there was a brief mention that this Mark person may have been a guy named Mark, who was in the Sigma Tau fraternity where Michelle had been to parties a few times. Miller also spoke to the person identified as Jocko in Michelle's diary, and Jocko's real name also happens to be Mark. Jocko was a bartender at the Purple Crackle in Cape Girardeau. So this was a nightclub that Michelle referred to simply as the Crackle in her diary. But Jocko also happened to have been a former member of the Sigma Tau fraternity, and he was able to give Miller a few names of people named Mark that he knew either through Crackle or through the fraternity. Now, none of the Marks that Bob Miller contacted The names that Jocko gave him, none of them remembered Michelle. And Jocko himself also had no memory of Michelle, although he did know Mark Abbott, but just by reputation. They weren't friends, they didn't hang out or anything like that. Although he said he's certain he would never have gotten in the same car as Mark Abbott, it is possible, as Miller theorizes, that Michelle dropped Mark and Jocko off at home as she writes about doing in her diary on August 6th. But this could have happened at completely separate times, meaning they were never in the same car together. So she didn't necessarily take Mark and Jacko home at the same time. She brought them both home, but at separate times that evening. Also, Michelle never states out of Mark and Jocko who she kissed and who asked her out. But since Jocko doesn't have a strong memory of Michelle, it was likely Mark that she had this intimate connection with as their relationship is the one that seems to progress with Michelle meeting Mark on July 2nd, kissing him on August 6th, bringing him some cake on August 30th, and finally staying over at his place on September 3rd. Bob Miller writes on his website that he got the impression that Michelle was one of the many girls who sort of liked to hang out with the Sigma Tau guys, who liked to hang out at Crackle. And she knew enough of the people who were related to these places by name just from being around them a lot. But she didn't know them well enough or have enough interactions with them for them to remember her out of the other throngs of college girls that they would have been seeing every weekend during that time. Bob Miller also spoke to the person named Mickey that Michelle referred to in her August 30th entry. So Mickey actually lived down the road from Michelle and they worked at Shoney's together. And by the time Miller tracked Mickey down, she couldn't remember exactly why Michelle would have been writing about cake in her diary, but she thought it could be a reference to someone else that Michelle had written about that day, Lauren. Lauren was Mickey's young daughter and her birthday had been a few weeks earlier, so they may have had cake that day to celebrate it. Now, Mickey told Bob Miller that she did not know who Mark was that Michelle was writing about in her diary. But when he asked her if Michelle had ever mentioned twins, Mickey said yes, Michelle had mentioned a set of twins and it talked about finding them attractive. And Mickey was not the only person who who had mentioned this specific fact. Michelle's best friend, Lelisha O'Dell, she told the police that she personally didn't go out with people that she didn't know well, but Michelle did. And she said one guy who she didn't know, but who wanted to go out with Michelle, he drove a little black truck. And as we know, Mark Abbott drove a black Chevy S10, which is a little black truck. You would say that an S10 is like a smaller truck, right?
2: Yeah, sorry, everybody with an S10, but it's a tinier truck. It's not huge.
1: Yeah. It's like a baby truck. I didn't say that. <laughs> I did. I didn't say that. <laughs> so, two other sources have told Bob Miller that Michelle had spoke about a set of twins, and she mentioned that she found them to be attractive. And in the forty eight hour special on this case, a friend of Michelle's claimed that Michelle had once told her she was going to see Mark Abbott, not necessarily that night of her death, but at some point she was meeting up with him. Now, there's also a few other geographical connections between Mark Abbott and Michelle Lawless. For instance, the Purple Crackle. So the Abbott twins' father, Larry Abbott, he was good friends with the owner of the Purple Crackle. And allegedly, because of this relationship, Mark and Matt Abbott were given special privileges at this nightclub, which in the 90s, the club did allow people 18 and older to come in. But obviously, if you were under 21, you wouldn't typically be allowed to drink unless you were an Abbott. And then that rule did not apply. The Abbott twins reportedly, according to what a bartender who worked at the Purple Crackle told Bob Miller, they were allowed to drink and party at the club to their heart's content even before they were 21. Now, Michelle's friends said that she often went to the Purple Crackle, and we know that Mark and Matt did as well, and so did their friend Kevin Williams. So it is very likely that Michelle could have met Mark on any given weekend at the Crackle. It was one of those places that he was known to be on a weekend night. Mark Abbott also knew Andy and Tammy Stone from the TNT tanning salon in Sykeston where Michelle tanned and where her ship Lyle Day sometimes worked and often hung out. So there's a lot of things, there's a lot of places where Michelle could have run into Mark Abbott. The police reportedly talked to a lot of people who knew Michelle and who knew of the men that she was seeing, but none of them mentioned anyone named Mark. And in fact, Lelisha O'Dell would later testify that Michelle hadn't even told her of these instances mentioned in her diary about meeting Mark, kissing him, staying at his house. And that kind of makes it seem that Maybe if Michelle did have something going on with this mystery, Mark, she might have been trying to maybe keep it a little bit of a secret. And if we look at Mark Abbott's personal life at the time of Michelle's murder, we could understand why. The Abbott boys, as I mentioned, did have a reputation for being very charming, charismatic, kind of like the big men around town. And always sort of also courting various women. Also at the time, Mark Abbott was in a serious relationship with his friend Kevin's sister, um, Melissa Williams or Missy Williams. They lived together. So if Michelle was kind of walking on the wild side and maybe having a small dalliance with uh, Mark Abbott, who was a bad boy, she may have kept it on the down low. She may not have been wanting to tell her friends about this, either because Mark had asked her not to, you know, maybe he'd asked her to keep it quiet so that his girlfriend, Missy, wouldn't find out, or because Michelle knew that her friends might judge her for getting involved with someone who had a reputation for kind of being a womanizer and a party, kind of a partier and like somebody who wasn't going to take you seriously, like Mark Abbott. So we may not know exactly who this mystery Mark is in Michelle's diary, but I think it's safe to say that there were enough connections between Mark and the Purple Crackle and the TNT Salon. And in general, just between Mark and places or people that Michelle was familiar with, it's safe to say they could have met at some point before her death. And honestly, they probably did. They knew people that they had in common, you know, like they knew the same people. They would run in the same circles. They would go to the same places so it's, it's almost hard to believe that Michelle and Mark Abbott never crossed paths at all before her death.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I would love to be a fly on the wall and know how much of this was investigated by police. Because if I were looking at this case, I would be looking at my victim's journal um, very intensely mm-hmm. and making note of anybody who's mentioned in there. And this guy, Mark regardless of who this Mark is, he would be uh, be high on my list. And so let's say for, for, for this example, it's not Mark Abbott. I would do whatever I could to try to identify how many Marks were in the immediate area, how many Marks would be in the relative rate, age range of her and could have crossed paths with her during this time. Uh, other Marks that maybe her friends and family were aware of. I'd go speak with all of them to see if they had any type of connection with her, if they had any intimate t- relationship with her, all of these things to to potentially rule them out uh, and also narrow the pool of potential people that could be this Mark. And as far as what you said about Mark Abbott, it does sound like it's him, doesn't it? Right? It sounds like the reason you would think that if they were intimate with each other, multiple people would be able to verify that. But if this, like you said, was something that was kind of hush hush because... Mark was in a relationship and Michelle was honoring that by not saying anything to her friends or family. And obviously Mark didn't want her around in any public places like the Purple Crackle because then that might tip other people off to what they were doing. So when they met up, it was usually alone or at his home, right? So the only people that would know would probably be Matt Abbott and his father, which and Kevin Williams, yeah, and uh, Kevin Williams, right? Kevin Williams, the friend, was he living there as well?
1: No, but I mean, like, later Kevin Williams is going to claim that Michelle was seeing Mark and there was a relationship there. So, like, yeah, this is something if you even though. Mark is dating Kevin's sister, you know. But rose before hose, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, even if it's your your own sister,
2: yeah, wouldn't be the first. Wouldn't be the first time I heard something like that. But obviously, this is extremely significant because it doesn't. There's nothing in that journal entry that says, "Oh, Mark was the one that killed Michelle." But from what we have with Mark and Matt, they have made it very clear up to this point in our series that they do not know Michelle Lawless.
1: Well Mark, Mark has said that. Matt and Matt's never really spoken to yeah, by I, I always conclude point.
2: them together, so I'll stick with Mark, but ultimately
1: Who knows? They could be the same person and they just pretend that he's they, just been it's Mark Abbott pretending to be like two both. people. Maybe they were never the, twins. <laughs> maybe they never or were they ever twins. seen
2: in the same place? That's <laughs> right? the real question. Um, yeah, what's that my daughters always watch that show with Dove Cameron she's like a twin on the show but in reality it's just one woman playing both roles Dove Cameron anyways I, off I mean the it's kind of like
1: Lindsay Lohan right in yeah, The Parent ex- Trap yeah. there you go that's more our speed I think I go. have no idea who Dove Cameron even Dove is Dove Cameron
2: she's like huge by the way oh, shout okay. out Dove Cameron in case you watch this oh is she know. a singer yes
1: okay I know her from singing yeah. I didn't know she was an actress
2: yeah alright so I we eat go.
1: boys like you for breakfast okay never mind. there
2: you go alright <laughs> that song Um, but when it comes to Mark, this is incredibly significant because if you're able to definitively say that the Mark in this book is Mark Abbott, then it is unreasonable for Mark to walk into a police station and say that he approached a car that he didn't immediately recognize and saw a woman inside the car who was injured
1: that he didn't know was a woman,
2: (laughs) right? And recognize the this as the same woman. That he had been, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume for this person they're sleeping over together that they were sleeping together. Maybe I'm wrong, but I at minimum, a inti- yeah. Uh, at minimum, intimate with each other. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's the back of her head, the front of her head, the car in conju- conjunction with her body. I would know who that person is very easily within a second. I would probably recognize the car as I pulled up to it if I wasn't the one who had killed her. Right. So if if you were able to say without a shadow of a doubt. That Mark had an existing relationship with Michelle prior to this incident, and he went to the lengths that he went to to make it seem as if he had never met her before in his life. Although that doesn't, although there's not evidence there that says yes, he killed her. I would go out on a limb and say, if you could prove that he knew her and had a relationship with her, based on his behavior when he was asked about her or when he inquired about her, I would say it's very likely. That he that he was involved in her death. Because there would be no other reason to do that. None whatsoever. And that, and I I stand on that. There would be no other rational explanation for denying any relationship with her. You could say, oh, he didn't want people to know that he was speaking to her because it could affect his existing relationship. Get out of here with that. I mean, get out of here with that. He wasn't married. He was young. You would at least acknowledge, yeah, I know, I know who she is. I've seen her before. Yeah, I know. I know the name, you know, because you would want to be honest with cops in case they start looking at people. Yeah. You know, we actually hung out a couple times, but I hope that remains within these police reports. But, yeah, I did. I did talk to her a few times and she hung out at my house a couple times. But, you know, there was nothing there.
1: As we're going to talk about, Mark doesn't have any problem telling the police that after reporting what he saw that night, he went to. Another woman's house and sort of spent the night that was not his girlfriend. So yeah, no,
2: he's he's doing he's. he's so if
1: you're if you're able to talk about other women that you're having dalliances with that are outside oh, your girlfriend, point. why would you hide your no. any connection to Michelle? Right, he's admitting infidelity that looks with more other suspicious. women. suspicious,
2: yeah. Right, so it's not the it's not the ethical part of it, right? We can rule that out. I think it's not we can rule that and, out. Yeah. <laughs> it, so it, so then you're left with really one explanation. He wants to distance himself from Michelle as much as possible. Yeah. Because he's trying to create that level of separation where the, the police can't connect the dots.
1: Where I have no motive. How could I? I don't even know her.
2: Right. And that's why Bob Miller probably spent so much time on this because he knows what I'm sitting here saying, which is, hey, if you can prove that he knew Michelle before her death, whether it's a, a some type of photo, whatever it might be. Oh, my God. If you had a photo, if you had a photo of just them being... I you mean, know, imagine
1: if it happened now, right? I, like you just go on Instagram, look up the purple crackle, get,
2: yep, and see game who's changer. posting
1: pictures. You know, from Could that be just night a, in
2: the background, exactly. Right, game changer. It would be, mm-hmm. and that's why I think it's so significant. And I, and I'm not knowing the town, but it seems like everybody knew everyone. I feel like if there was another mark in question, they would they would have identified this potential other mark as well.
1: Yeah. And that's what I was going to kind of say. Like, you've got Benton, right? And then you have, like, Sykeston and Cape Gerardo. And these are all, like, you know, in the same area. And clearly, Michelle is hanging out in, in the Cape and she's hanging out in Sykeston. That's where she goes tanning and she's cruising and stuff. So it's not like they all stayed in their designated place where they were born. They all kind of hung out in the Purple Crackle is in Cape Girardeau. It kind of seemed like that's where all of the nightlife was sort of located. So yeah, the the kids, the younger generation in, in whatever, it's Benton or Sykeson or what, they're going to go to Cape Girardeau on on the weekends and they're all going to sort of like meet up there. And that's what I'm trying to say. Like even if the mystery Mark in Michelle's diary is not Mark Abbott, it's still... For me, hard to believe that these two people never crossed paths, even though they went to the same places and they had people in common. Like they knew people in common.
2: Uh, this isn't. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but Michelle was having relationships with multiple men. Yes. And e- even if it were just at that level, it, I find it very hard to believe that Mark wouldn't know of her, especially in a, in a town like that where he wouldn't have heard that name, known of her, maybe seen her out once or twice. So when mm-hmm. you have that reenactment. And the name is brought up and he basically has no clue who this girl is. No clue whatsoever. Never heard of her. Never seen her. Barely knows the dad. Knows the name. That's about it. It's a it's a, it's a, a stretch. He would have been better off just saying, yeah, you know, I, I've seen her a couple of times. That's crazy, you know. And she always seemed like a nice person or whatever. Something. But, man, I'll tell you what. We always talk about things that can still be done in this case to move it forward years later. Man, if someone came forward and had evidence that those two knew each other.
1: I mean, lots of people have, but that's just hearsay. Yeah, it's just hearsay. Said it. Like, I know you mentioned
2: Kevin Williams came forward, so this is significant. And and is
1: Kevin Williams, like, the question is, is Kevin Williams doing it to detract attention from him, to cover his own ass, to sort of point the finger? Like, it's so difficult. And why didn't the police put as much work into finding out who the mark in Michelle's diary was? As agreed. as Bob
2: Miller did, like agreed. I that that, would have been all over that. That right. one of the, not only identifying who her killer was, but identifying every single male that she was having, in, uh, you know, consistent interactions with. If she's noting them in her journal, right? You gotta. <laughs> you can't close that case you until you figure
1: out who that is. Until
2: you've men- Until you've identified everybody in that book, especially and the more recent ones.
1: By the time Bob Miller's asking these questions, it's years and years later. So yeah. People are going to have a hard time remembering who the mark in her diary was because clearly like there's like five or six people named it's a very common name.
2: I would even I'm telling you what I would have done, Stephanie. I'm telling you right now, if I would have done everything in my power to try to find out who this mark was. And once I ruled out all the marks I could think of, all the marks I could find, I would bring Mark Abbott in a room. And I would pull some interrogation shit on him and I would I'd basically like, well, you say, know man, you're man, you kn- she wrote about you in her diary. Listen, man. we got evidence. Yeah. I got multiple witnesses and I got evidence linking you to Michelle. You knew who she was. You mm-hmm. and her were spending time together. She spent the night at your house. You don't ask him a question. You tell yeah. him what you know. And then see his reaction. See his reaction. Yeah. You put him under the heat, heat lamp and you, and you turn the pressure up and you see what happens. And I think- if you're good at what you do, you can crack him. Because if you're presenting it in a way where he's looking in your eyes and knowing and, and believes that you know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. that's how you. That's how you split. And it. if that's he how you has a it.
1: guilty conscience, then he exactly. will react. He doesn't know what you know. Yeah.
2: He doesn't know what you've confirmed. So it, 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 then you bust out. Then you just say, you know what? I'm not going to show you everything I have. Not going to show you everything I have. But I'm going to do you a solid. I'm going to show you a couple journal entries. Boom, boom. And by the way, Mark this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You don't even, t- like, even though that's everything you got, he don't know that. You're showing him the ace in the hole. He I mean, don't I know would that. I I wouldn't
1: even show. I would just like oh, send the diary down in front of him and be like, she n- wrote about you in her no, diary. No, I man. would show him.
2: <laughs> I would show him. I'd say, here are the dates. This is from the victim herself, right? And yeah, I've been then able he to could confirm could be like, some Well, how this. do you
1: know that's me? Mark is a, ca- a common name. I would tell him,
2: him, Mark, I'm not giving you my whole case right now. I need you to tell me how well you knew her. I'm not asking you if you knew her anymore. We already know you knew her. How many times did you guys hang out? That's what we got to start at. That's what I would keep going with. You don't give them an out.
1: And I already know because she wrote in her diary every day. So I already know how many times you guys, I'm only asking you to make this easier for you. Do you want to cooperate now?
2: Understand Mark, your friends are not your friends. People have been talking. That's all I'm going to tell you. People have been talking and don't make it go down this road. How long, how many times did you hang out with her? And when was the last time you saw her? That's all you're asking him. And and you go from there. You don't give him an out. You don't give him an opportunity to, to, to give an alibi. You tell him right out, we know that you know her and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. See, what, see how much he doubles down. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. But you have to identify this person before you close this case and put it on the shelf or at least put it aside. I shouldn't say close it. You got to be able to identify all parties, especially the people that she was she was hanging out with at the time of her death because I think it's very uh I think it's very coincidental that you have a guy by the name of Mark in recent journal entries and it just so happens that a guy by the name of Mark finds your victim. Yeah. It can happen. It's yeah, a common when you put name.
1: Put it that way, right? It's a common
2: <laughs> name. Yeah, maybe that's someone you want to look into. Maybe that's someone you want to take a real deep look at.
1: But what we can say for sure Um, We don't know who, who Mystery Mark was, but we know no one named Josh is talked about in Michelle's diary. And with that, we will go to our first break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Whether you want the perfect, healthy grab-and-go breakfast, mood-boosting hydration before or after a workout, or jitter-free caffeine to get you out of that afternoon slump, IQ Bar has it all. Discover the brain and body-boosting benefits of IQ Bar with the Ultimate Sampler Pack. Get 7 IQ Bars, 4 IQ Mix Sticks, and 4 IQ Joe Sticks. And today, our listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text weekly to 64000. So Derek and I have talked about how much we love the protein bars from IQ Bar before. Um, I think we we can't say enough good things about them. Not only do they taste really delicious, which is important because you're not going to put something in your mouth for an extended period of time if it doesn't taste good, but they're super good for you. And the sampler pack is a great way to try all IQ Bar products and flavors. All IQ Bar products are gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, and contain no GMOs or artificial sweet. Sweeteners And IQ Bars, which, like I said, we've talked about before, they are plant-based protein bars packed with high-quality ingredients for both your body and brain. IQ Bars are vegan, gluten-free, and low in both sugar and carbs. And it's really hard to find a protein bar that tastes good that is that low in sugar. And every flavor—chocolate sea salt, peanut butter chip, wild blueberry, and more—tastes amazing. But IQ Bar also has IQ Mix, which is a zero-sugar drink mix that hydrates with electrolytes, improves mood with magnesium. And magnesium is super, super important, and usually people aren't getting enough of it. And it boosts clarity with the Lion's Mane Adaptogen. On top of all their benefits, I love how delicious the flavors are. Uh, Blueberry pomegranate is so good. Blood orange is my favorite. Peach mango is also super good. And you can't go wrong with lemon-lime.
2: Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ bars four IQ mix sticks and four IQ Joe sticks. and now our special podcast listeners and viewers get 20% off all IQ bar products plus free shipping to get your 20% off just text weekly to 64000 go get your discount that's weekly to 64000 one more time weekly to 64000 by texting 64000 you agree to receive reoccurring automated marketing messages from IQ bar message and data rates may apply no purchase required terms apply available at iqbar.com reply stop to stop Help to help. That was a lot. Let's get back to it.
1: So another place that Mark Abbott was known to hang out on the weekends was a honky tonk bar in Sykeston called Country Nights. And Mark would tell police that this is where he was on the evening of November 7th before he found Michelle Lawless's body on the side of the highway. Mark said, quote, I worked on rehabbing some family rental property until about 10 p.m. Then I went to country nights. I think I got there around 11. I was dancing with Heather until about 1. I was pretty drunk and I had a suspended license, so I got off 55 at Benton to take 61. Those asshole Scott City cops were trying to catch me driving, so I took the back way home, end quote. Now, I think it's interesting. Depending on who Mark Abbott is talking to— So when he's talking to um, the Scott County Sheriff's Office, he's like, those freaking Scott City cops are the worst. They're a bunch of assholes. When he's talking to Scott City Police Department, you know, like when he gave um, that Scott City Police officer the statement about Ray Ring being at the the telephone booth that night, he's like, oh, those (laughs) Scott's County Sheriff's Office people are assholes. So like. Depending on who he's talking to, the other law enforcement agency are a bunch of assholes when in general, it just appears that Mark Abbott had a very negative view of law enforcement to begin with, even though it also seems that he got away with far more than he should have because dude's been driving around on a suspended license for a minute by this point. It's also worth noting that later Mark Abbott would also change his story about this. He would add another stop after leaving the rental property and before arriving at Country Nights. And this would be a party at the home of his friend, Kevin Williams's boss. But that's a story for another day. So the person that Mark claimed he saw that night at Country Nights was Heather Pierce, and she would be deposed in 1993. Heather and her mother, Glenna Pierce, who she lived with at that time and who she was with at Country Nights on the evening of September 7th, they both confirmed that they had seen Mark Abbott that night. Heather said she couldn't remember if she and Mark had planned to meet there on Saturday, but she usually did meet Mark at Country Nights and they would dance even though he lived with his girlfriend. So when Heather and Glenna arrived between 10 and 10.30 p.m., Mark was not there yet. Heather believes he arrived around 11, and she thinks that he came with his buddy, Kevin Williams. She said they usually came together, and Glenna Pierce, her mother, confirmed this as well, which is interesting because later, Kevin Williams would be like, no, I didn't go with um mark to country nights because mark was at this party at my boss's house with me and he was like oh i'm gonna go to country nights and then my wife got mad and was like no you're not going so kevin williams claims he was not at country nights that evening although heather and glenna pierce feel that he was Heather and Glenna said they left around closing time, which would have been like 1 a.m., but they were unsure of exactly when Mark Abbott arrived and left. Mark told police that he also left around 1 a.m., which would easily have put him at the Benton exit by 1.15 a.m. But Heather Pierce saw Mark Abbott again that night. She claimed after she arrived home... She put her kids in bed. I think it's a little late to be putting your kids in bed after 1 a.m., but okay. And then she went around the house shutting off lights. As she was turning off the porch light, Heather said she saw Mark Abbott pull up. And this would have been shortly after 2 a.m. And Heather said she was a bit surprised by this because she hadn't been expecting him. And when she opened the door for him, he was in a bad state. Mark told Heather that he had just touched a dead girl and he needed the bathroom because he thought he might have blood on his hands. Mark went into the bathroom, washed up, and when he emerged, Heather said he was shaking and seemed very disturbed. She said, quote, He sat on the couch and told me that he had stopped, and there was a car stopped at the stop sign on the Benton exit, and he had stopped, gotten out, and there was a girl slumped over in the seat, and he had reached in and grabbed her and pulled her up to see if she was okay, and she'd passed out or something. And he said he saw something, what looked like maybe blood or holes in the back of her neck. And when he lifted her up, he saw more blood and that frightened him and he let her go. She fell back over, I assume, and he freaked out and got in his truck and left. At first, he was just scared and leaving as soon as possible. And then he said he backtracked, went to a friend's house or somebody who would call and let the police know what he had found. End quote. Now, Heather said she didn't know who this friend was, this friend who Mark had apparently gone to after finding Michelle and, I guess, before reporting what he'd seen to the sheriff's office. Mark had not told her where he'd stopped to make the call, but he never said that anyone had driven up to him while he was making the call. And according to Mark, he fell asleep on Heather's couch for several hours before waking up and leaving early in the morning. And It just doesn't it really doesn't add up because we don't know how long he fell asleep on the couch. Like some sources say he was fell asleep for like three hours. Some sources say he woke up in the morning when the sun was up and then he left. But what we do know is even if he only stayed three hours or if he waited till the sun came up, let's say it's like 830 or 9, he clearly did not go right home. Because we know that Deputy Beardsley arrived at Mark's trailer on the morning of Sunday, September 8th, and Mark wasn't there to be interviewed until later that afternoon. So Beardsley had been to the trailer at 9.24 a.m. and 10.15 a.m., but it was not until 12.45 p.m. that Mark Abbott's truck was parked outside the trailer. So there's also some sources that claim Mark went somewhere else before going to Heather Pierce's house. What I would call a reliable source, but maybe not. We'll see. We're going to talk more about that later.
2: I'm going to guess it was his brother at some point, right? His brother was involved with this whole thing. You haven't mentioned him yet, but.
1: It was not his brother who said that he didn't. He went someplace else before going to Heather Pierce's house. It was his girlfriend at the time. But once again, these things don't come out until like years later during the trial. Mm. Um,
2: so. Well, we know at one point he had an interaction with his brother. Somebody how we, did. How do we know? Well, because we have someone who went to the police department to report her, report Michelle, and then we have someone who showed up to the to the actual crime scene again after the fact.
1: And you think that that couldn't be the same person?
2: It could be, but if I'm going out on a limb here, I would say he goes home, tells his brother what happened, he goes and lays low at this woman's home to be off the radar for a little bit. Well, he didn't bro- get there
1: till after two.
2: He didn't get there till after two. But that's what I'm saying. He goes home to his br- to see his brother, tells him what's up. His brother says, some find somewhere to lay low. That's why he shows up this this woman Heather's house and basically unexpectedly without like she, she didn't know he was coming over, but he needs a place to go to be off the radar. So he goes there, crashes on her couch for that's a few hours. That's not his
1: house in case police come looking for him.
2: Right. It's not yeah. his house. He's crashing somewhere else. He's off the radar and his brother is going around doing the follow up. Checking in, seeing what he can find out, seeing what police know. Who are they looking for? If they're looking for his brother, they're going to say to him, hey, hey, Matt, where's your brother Mark at? They didn't even want, barely want to talk to him that night. So he he probably went back to Mark and said, hey, man, nobody's asking questions about you. You're good so far.
1: All right. So here's what I think. I think that Mark and Matt were allegedly, in my opinion, both active that night directly after um, you know what happened to Michelle happened. I think that Mark went to the sheriff's office to report what he had found, right? And, and maybe he gave his name as Matt, or maybe West Drury overheard, or maybe Rest Drury purposely gave the wrong name to try to like add some confusion to the mix. We don't know for sure. And Matt goes to the crime scene and talks to Officer Moore. And asks, like, oh, I'm the one that found her and reported her. Is she alive? Because he's trying to get some information at this point. Because remember, the person who pulled up to Officer Moore was driving a truck and wearing different clothes than the person who had reported to have found Michelle at the sheriff's office. And we know that Mark drove that little baby truck. And we know that Matt drove a car. So what, what that's, time did,
2: did what time did uh, Mark slash Matt show up at the police station again?
1: Well... That is a very good question. And I'm actually going to tell you right now.
2: Okay, Okay, great. I did not know. That <laughs> <I laughs> yeah, wasn't planned, Perfect, plan, perfect timing.
1: <laughs> so as a quick refresher, um, Mark has talked to the police in some capacity several times by the time he's interviewed again on November 23rd. So... His story has never stayed the same any of these times. So let's say for the sake of argument that it was Mark Abbott and not Matt Abbott who showed up to the Scott County Sheriff's Office around 1.30 a.m. on September 8th to report finding a girl in a car who had been shot. At that time, Mark knew that Michelle was a girl and that she'd been shot, right? Because he says this to West Drury, I found a girl. She's been shot. Next, someone claiming to be the same person who'd already reported seeing Michelle's car at the sheriff's office pulled up to the crime scene in a car between 1.35 and 1.39 a.m. And this person asked Officer Moore if the girl was dead. Once again, if this was Mark, he knew that the victim inside the car was a female. So is it possible that it could have been the same person? Yes, because the sheriff's office is very close to where Michelle's car was, like I think a mile and a half, two miles away. So if Mark reported what he saw at one thirty, he could have, you know, taken five minutes to do that and then left and been at the crime scene by one thirty nine. I just don't think that it was Mark in both places. I just don't, in my opinion.
2: No, I mean, um, you could have that easily answered, right? Because again, you're saying it was a one thirty nine he showed up at the crime scene?
1: Between one thirty five and one thirty nine is what Officer Moore gives.
2: It's really easy. Uh, from what you said at the beginning, it was uh, Roy Moore who was at the crime scene, right? Who spoke with Matt or Mark, right? Yeah, I'm doing yes. quotations here. Okay. Correct. So at minimum, Moore, because he's a human being with two eyes, mm-hmm. should be able to recall what the individual was wearing that he spoke with. He did. Right. And also Heather should be able to recall what Mark was wearing when he arrived. And if it's the same person more than likely they would be wearing the same clothing. If not, then it would be two different people, unless at this age, Mark and Matt were still matching their clothes like you do with younger identical twins.
1: I mean, as we established in the first episode, the person who showed up to the sheriff's office and the person who showed up to the scene and talked to Roy Moore, they were not wearing the same clothes. Exactly.
2: But what I'm saying is, let's say for a second, Mark, after going to the crime scene, Right. Mm-hmm. After going to the police, went home, changed, mm-hmm. then went to the crime scene. He would not have time to do that. That's my point. So yeah. I, I, my, I'm under the belief it's two different people. But what we, we'd have to theorize here is that Mark shows up at the crime at the police station, makes the initial report, goes home, changes, goes out to the crime scene. Right. And then I would want to know if the person at the crime scene, whatever clothes he was wearing were the same Description of clothing that Heather described. Because if not, then it would be Mark going home and doing another wardrobe change before going to her house. So the only explanation would be two different people.
1: Well, first of all, Heather's not spoken to until nineteen ninety three.
2: Okay, but she can't remember what he what what clothes he was wearing. I mean, maybe not. But regardless, I, mean, I would still think. Like, I
1: would say that if Mark showed up at her house around two and was like, "I just touched a dead girl. I need to wash my hands." Dude has not gone home and changed because why would you go home and change your clothes but not wash your hands if you thought you had blood on your hands and then you'd go to somebody else's house to wash your hands unless you were trying to set up an alibi, unless you were trying to make it look like you were someplace else and that you were just you had just come from discovering this. And uh, I don't know what to do. So I agree with you. I just don't know if Heather was even asked what Mark was wearing when he showed up at her house that night.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would think if something that crazy showed up where he said, I just touch a dead girl, you it would be it would be burned in your brain what was said and what was what you saw that night. But overall the point is
1: the the police didn't care about Mark Abbott. Right. So they're not asking oh, no, these clearly. questions. No, I, they don't I get care that. If it's if it's Mark or if it's Matt or if they're, these two twins are walking around pretending to be each other all damn night, they did not care. So these clarifying questions. We're never asked.
2: Yeah, you're looking at a situation where you have Mark carrying this out on his own. Where if he if he did it, and then going home to Matt and saying, "Brother, I need some help here. I'm in trouble. Something went down. It yes. wasn't meant to happen like this. I need your help." And Matt says, "Go to get off the get off the road. Go park your car somewhere. Go. Don't leave. I'll come get you or I'll find you. Just tell me where you're going." Or as I think you alluded to a little while ago. They were together the whole time and they just split up after yes, the incident. That is period. what I,
1: I bet. Yes, yeah. that's what I'm, yeah.
2: that's so, what I'm saying. But
1: Allegedly I think both scenarios are
2: plausible yeah. because he didn't show up at Heather's until 2 a.m. So it would be easy for him to Yeah, go but home. He was at
1: the sheriff's office by 1.30. So he would have had to have reported what he saw before going home.
2: I agree. I agree with that assessment. One yeah. fifteen, he's at the crime scene. 1.30, he's at the police department on it. He goes and talks to his brother. I'm not going back there. You go back there for me. And his brother says, go get out of here. Don't be here in case they come looking for you. Go somewhere else.
1: Because Matt, well, whoever was pretending to be Mark at the crime scene, whether it was Mark or Matt, is there between 135 and 139, which solidifies, in my opinion, my belief that they were together at the crime scene and they split up. And Mark was probably like, all right, I'm going to report it. Give me like five, 10 minutes. And then you pull up and see what these people know. You know, like when when the police start coming and you see stuff's happening and the scenes being processed, pull up and just see what they know If, if 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 she's dead, because maybe they didn't. I mean, I don't know how you would shoot somebody that many times and not know that she was dead. But either way. I don't understand the whole point of it because the police aren't going to just be like, yes, she is dead. And actually, we're looking for somebody named Mark Abbott in this crime. And that's you. So we're going to arrest you. Like, what are you hoping to find that soon after? I'm not sure.
2: If you committed the crime, you're not going to go right back to the crime scene. You're not going to put yourself there. But again, like you said, they're not smart. So you That's could argue why that. That's I
1: think Mark was at the sheriff's office and Matt was at the crime scene. Yeah,
2: it's possible. I would also say, where are these times coming from?
1: Uh, the police reports. So like after okay. Officer Moore went home, you know, because he had yep. that white car pull up to him just minutes before whoever was claiming to be Mark pulled up. So he was marking these times. Thank God.
2: Yeah. And I, w- I the only thing I'll say is... It, it, is based on the department we're dealing with, right? We can't in one sentence say that they're I terrible agree. investigators yeah. and at the same time hold them to the standard that their times are completely accurate. So mm. these even could if be rough estimates, yeah. Even if they're t- five or 10 minutes off, I think you would agree based on the mileage, they then it might be plausible that it was two of them. It could be. So that's the only thing I'm saying. I think either plausible scenario, that it was one of them? One of them and then a collective effort after the fact where he says, yeah, bro, I need maybe. your help. And, and that's why m- m- if it's Matt, Matt makes the mistake of going over there to see what they have. Mm-hmm. And he and he speaks to someone where he's not as nervous about being over there because there's nothing forensically on him that's going to tie him back to the crime yeah. where Mark's not going back to the crime scene because he's still got fucking blood on his hands. You know, he's not going back there. If it's Mark that shows up, he's not going back there. So, But he
1: pulls up in a car and Mark Abbott doesn't drive a car. He drives a little black baby truck.
2: That's right. So yeah. Mike, so Matt was the one that went back there. I Matt, believe again, so. Yes. Matt not Matt not being involved, which also to me
1: allegedly, um, but I I wouldn't say that for sure. That what? That Matt was not involved with the crime.
2: No, I'm not saying that either. I'm oh. saying those are the two scenarios. You're you're playing defense attorney right now. I'm oh, just saying there's two scenarios. The two scenarios are the one that you laid out.
1: In one scenario, Matt's not involved. You're saying
2: M- Matt's just being the brother. Okay. And he's trying to gather information about it. And I think either scenario is possible. And I think the fact that they're in two different vehicles so quickly could also suggest that. But I'm not saying that what you're saying is implausible. Mm-hmm. Because, again, if it's two different, if now you have to have a situation where, and I know you said this in episode two, where this was some collaborative effort where they waited for this young woman to come off the exit. They had a car parked on the ramp, maybe one behind her. I personally will come right out and say, I don't believe that that happened. Mm-hmm. I just think that I don't see why they would do that all that for this girl who they barely knew, who Mark wasn't really even telling people about. But now they're going to plan an assassination.
1: Well, I haven't even told you what their motives would be.
2: Well, that's what I'm saying. We're going to get there. But I'm only this point. You get, you know the whole episode. You know the whole story. Up to this point, I don't see a world where these two guys plan the assassination of this young girl who they barely knew. Now, maybe that'll change. But I think it's a more likely scenario where this was something where they had met before. They were meeting in the past, which would line up with their journal entries, and something went south. I don't know what that is. We probably never will know. But something didn't go according to plan, and it resulted in Michelle's death. Mm-hmm. Mark scrambles because he's been hanging out with her consistently, mm-hmm. if he's the mark in the journal mm-hmm. entries. And the fr- who are you going to go to? You're going to go to your who brother. You going to call, yeah. You're gonna go to your brother. So, if the times are a little off, off, I would even argue. I know based on these timestamps, it doesn't work. But I would even argue that if they're a little off, the first thing Mark does is flies home, runs home, bro. I screwed up. I I don't know what to do. My, Matt says, "You're you just you just fled the scene of a crime." Well, he, you they need- don't
1: live together, so he would have, have had to gone to his brother's
2: house. Wherever this, wherever his brother. Yeah. Matt, I screwed up, dude. Something just went down. What do I do? idiot you just left the crime scene you're gonna you gotta go back to the police you gotta you gotta let them know like you found her like that you're an idiot get over there right now so he runs to the police station reluctantly because his brother said go there and that's why almost concurrently what like 10 minutes later the other brother is showing up at the crime scene he's already going out there
1: yeah I so make any, I, I think it's just a stupid thing to do
2: but well who said they were smart
1: Nobody ain't nobody said they were so. All right. So we got, you know, Mark or Matt or whoever going to the sheriff's office. I found a girl. She's been shot. Then we got Mark or Matt going to Officer Moore at the scene. I'm the one who reported this girl. Is she dead? And then the next morning, right, when Chief Deputy Beardsley speaks to Mark a little bit before 1 p.m. on on September 8th, Mark claimed that he picked up the body in the car and he only knew that the person was a woman because of the rings on her fingers, which we've already proved could not possibly be true because Michelle's rings would be located in the center console of her car. So why is Mark saying that on September 8th when he clearly told two other police officers the night before? I found a girl and she's been shot, you know? How would he even know that she'd been shot, honestly? How would you know? How would you have gotten that close? And then, you know, he's telling uh, um, Deputy Beardsley, yeah, the only reason I knew she was a girl was because of the rings on her fingers. Like, why are you even saying that? It seems like you're saying things specifically, once again, like you said earlier, to distance yourself. I know nothing about this person. I didn't even know if it was a girl or a boy until I saw rings on her fingers, which... That also tells me you've seen Michelle before because she did wear a lot of rings on her fingers, typically, that night, she did not have them on. So you must have encountered her before to even know that she had rings that she wore on a regular basis. Mark also said on that morning that Michelle's body was cold, even though first responders on the scene reported that Michelle's body was still warm and clammy. And Mark said he'd reached through the open driver's side window to lift her body, even though Beardsley didn't believe the window had been open far enough for Mark to have maneuvered his entire upper body inside that window in order to lift Michelle in the way he had described. Now, during his can, convers- can I stop
2: you right? There for a second too, because yeah. I was thinking about this episode one. I think about myself like if I rolled up on a car and I saw someone slumped over, would I reach in the window where I'm kind of at like an awkward angle to try to lift them up, or would I just open? Would the you door?
1: try the door? Yeah, because the door, the driver's side door, wasn't locked, right?
2: Yeah, or I would at least try it to find mm-hmm. out. Yeah. You know. I would try to find out. I don't. But it believe- wasn't. We, right, we so, know when
1: when the first responders got there, the passenger side door was. locked. seems
2: like a, It seems like an awkward thing to do. It doesn't. Like, hey, it does not make any sense. Hey, are you okay? And you like you put might. Your you head- might
1: speak through the yeah. open window. And then when that person didn't move, maybe you'd open the door and then try to, like, shake them. But you wouldn't, like, lift them. Yeah, (laughs) doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So during his conversation with Beardsley, Mark would also mention, remember, something about a sketchy hitchhiker. But this hitchhiker would never be a part of his version of events again. Never talk about this person again. Not long after talking to Beardsley, Mark once again went to the Scott County Sheriff's Office talked to Deputy Brenda Schwitz, And he did mention seeing someone else that night, but it wasn't a hitchhiker by Michelle's car. It was a dark complex man, probably Mexican, in a small white car who pulled up to him in the parking lot of the cut mark while Mark was trying to call 911. Then we know that on November 18th, Mark went to the Scott City Police Department, spoke to Officer Bobby Wooten, once again changing his story and claiming he now knew who he had seen in the parking lot on that night. And it wasn't a Mexican man at all. It was now a black man named Ray Ring. And Mark knew that Ring was looking to talk to him. And he thought that Ray Ring was looking to talk to him because he wanted to ask him about what he'd seen that night. And we also know from Brenda Schwitz's notebook, which would not be uncovered until many years later, that during a law enforcement meeting on November 11th, Mark Abbott was placed on a list of suspects in the murder of Michelle Lawless, even though Schwitz and Sheriff Bill Farrell would later say that Abbott was never an early suspect in this case. We also know that Brenda herself was suspicious of Mark's changing stories. She made notes wondering why Abbott returned to the crime scene after reporting what he had seen at the sheriff's office. She wondered why he was telling several different stories about what he had seen that night, and she planned to interview him again, but she didn't want Abbott to know that the Scott City Sheriff's Office had talked to the Scott City Police Department and found out about what he had reported seeing Ray Ring at the Cut Mart that night. So she wrote in her notes, don't mention Ray Ring, ask about Guy at phone, see if he gives names. And she wanted to make sure that when she talked to Mark Abbott again on November 23rd, she sort of strategically almost gave him the rope to hang himself right like let's see if he says the same thing to us that he said to the scott city police department yeah and uh now that we've kind of recapped that and and i like to see it all laid out like how many times the story changed and why would an innocent person have so many different wild versions of events that don't like resemble each other at all and to see it laid out like that i think it's a little bit more impactful so let's take a break and we'll be right back With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. The kids are back to school, and people think that um, with the kids back to school, life gets less stressful and less busy. But I hate to tell you, if you don't have kids, it gets way more stressful and more busy. Because during the summer, everybody's kind of doing their own thing; they're on your schedule. But when they go back to school, you're on their schedule, and you can kickstart a fresh fall routine with Hello Fresh. Hello Fresh handles all the meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard work, and you get to take the credit. And when it comes to options honestly with hellofresh more is more that's why their menus include 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week and a busy fall schedule doesn't always leave you with time to spare with hellofresh you don't need to spend all evening in the kitchen to whip up a wholesome meal with their quick and easy recipes and 15 minute meals you can get a tasty dinner on the table in less time than it takes to get takeout or delivery and that is the truth i can tell you from experience Lately, getting anything DoorDash takes forty-five minutes plus. And did you ever wish you could spend less time planning, shopping, and cooking for the family, and more time with your family? From easy time-saving breakfasts, which will help during back to school and family dinners, to kid-approved lunches and snacks, HelloFresh has what it takes to keep everyone, including you, happy and satisfied. I love that HelloFresh sends all the ingredients that you need for each recipe right to your door. They're always fresh, farm to table, they always look good, they taste good, and they give you recipe cards that you can easily follow along with, with pictures, step-by-step instructions, everything that you need to put together any meal that they give you, even if you're not used to being in the kitchen, even if you're not used to cooking. So we love HelloFresh. I know personally I've been using HelloFresh since early 2020. Derek's been using HelloFresh for at least – I would say almost two years at this point, definitely over a year. And we both love it. We love the time it gives us to spend more time with our family. We love cooking with our families. And he's going to tell you how you can check HelloFresh out for yourself.
2: That's right. Just go to HelloFresh.com slash 50CrimeWeekly and use our code 50 weekly for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Once again, that's HelloFresh.com slash 50CrimeWeekly and use our code 50 weekly for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Go check them out, guys. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit.
1: Great, right, we're back. So the next interview with Mark Abbott happened on November 23rd, and at this time, Abbott was interviewed by Deputy Brenda Schwitz and Trooper Don Wyndham. Now, Mark claimed during this interview he did not know Michelle. He repeated that he was willing to give a blood sample and submit to a polygraph test, and he talked more about his encounter with the stranger in the parking lot of the cut mark. Mark said that the man had stopped behind his truck about six feet away from where Mark was standing at the payphone, and while still in his vehicle, the man said, I'm out of fuel. I've got to go with you. Mark did not mention the man speaking with an accent, and he said he told the driver, screw you, before jumping into his own truck and taking off. When asked for a physical description of the man, Mark said that he wasn't black. But he could have been Hispanic or Mexican as he had a dark complexion. He said he had black hair with the sides and backs longer, which does that sound like a mullet to you? Like, what do you think? The sides and the back longer?
2: I would just think like a bushy haircut. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like just short, looks like,
1: un, like uncapped, cover, right? Yeah, like
2: covering his ears, like that old school style haircut where it's like long on all, on all three sides. Just
1: long in general. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like bushy. He said that the man was clean-shaven and younger than 20 years old. But then Mark also told Schwitz and Wyndham that he'd heard from his friend Kevin and Kevin's wife, Terry, that Ray Ring wanted to talk to him. And so based on that, he thought the man at the payphone could have been Ray Ring, even though just moments before he said the guy wasn't black, which Ray Ring was. I mean, he was half black and half white, but he's, he's still still a black man. So it just doesn't make any sense, honestly. And to me, this would be very suspicious as a police officer. But okay, Abbott also had more details about the small white car that the man was driving. He said it was newer looking and it was in the shape of a Saab or something similar with a spoiler on it. And so Mark was driven around so that he could sort of like identify a similar car to the one he'd seen in the Cutmart parking lot that night. And he pointed out a Mercury Mercur XL4 TI with a spoiler attached. And at that point, Brenda Schwitz noticed similarities between Mark's description of this dark-skinned man in a white car and Officer Moore's description of a dark-skinned man in a white car who had pulled up to the crime scene the night of Michelle's murder just minutes before allegedly Mark himself had pulled up to Moore. I will also say there's no record of anyone in law enforcement asking Mark's brother Matt Abbott where he was in, you know, on the night of November 7th or the early morning hours of November 8th. And years later at the trial, when he was finally asked this question, Matt Abbott claimed, quote, I don't remember what I did that weekend. It didn't stand out in my mind at the time because I didn't hear about the murder until a few days later, end quote. I think it's very weird that somebody you thought was Matt Abbott reported a crime to you or reported coming upon a crime scene and nobody actually found the real Matt Abbott to ask him, hey, did you report that or was it your brother? And by the way, what were you doing that night? Where were you at? I think it's incredibly like, once again, it's negligent, lazy. It's bordering on kind of like we're just purposely going to not ask him.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. That's why when I was saying earlier about these (laughs) timestamps, I think these guys could have been that accurate when they can't even do the basics. I don't have a lot of hope for them.
1: So I will say that I think Officer Roy Moore was probably like on point.
2: Of course you would.
1: But <laughs> of I, course
2: you would. Why? Why? Is that the one guy who gives you your timestamps?
1: No, uh, West Drury did too. That's yeah. who Mark allegedly talked to when he was mad. The sheriff's when he, office. When he rolled
2: in there, yeah, West. So,
1: but I don't. I don't really trust West Drury that much. I think that he's kind of like too close to we'll the situation. It away. I just think he's too close to the situation. The fact that a guy
2: came into the station, he let him go home right away without he taking anything He let him go home,
1: him. and and then yeah. like later the next day, he's like, "Hey, you 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 were Matt when you reported," and then Mark was like, "No, I'm Mark. I said that," and, and West drew was like, "Okay, yeah, <laughs> you know," and they did, like, didn't yeah. push it. Like
2: that part is that your yeah. hesitation? Yeah. Okay.
1: So after Michelle's murder, Scott County Sheriff Bill Farrell announced that he believed her death had been an isolated incident and people didn't have anything to fear. So basically, like, there's not some serial killer out there just randomly targeting young women. We believe that this was like personally fueled and you don't have to worry that there's some killer on the loose that's going to like attack your daughters. Friends and family established a reward fund in return for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Michelle's murder, and tipsters were directed to call the sheriff's department with any details that they had. And some tips did begin to come in. Marsha Bollinger said that she was driving east on Highway 77 at 12.45 a.m. the night of the murder when she saw a man walking on the shoulder of the road headed west away from the Feral Sales trailer park. She described the man as being about six feet tall, medium build, with no beard or glasses, wearing a tan quilted zipper jacket and tan work pants. His hair was light colored and scraggly, styled in a mullet, and it came to his collar. Roy Easter visited the sheriff's office on the Monday after Michelle's murder and told law enforcement there that around 1.25 a.m. he'd been driving home from a pole tournament in Charleston, Missouri, when he saw a man just past the Farrell RV sales lot and this man was walking on the side of the road. Esther said the man was about six foot with light colored shoulder length hair and he was wearing a thin, dark colored jacket. Easter also thought he remembered seeing a car sitting at the stop sign for the interstate exit ramp in the location that Michelle's car would be found very shortly after this. Shortly after talking to Roy Easter, the sheriff's department got a call from a woman named Kathy Corver, and she reported that she and her husband had been driving south on Interstate 55, about half a mile north of the Benton exit, and they actually saw the flashing lights of first responders at the location of Michelle's vehicle. This was around 2.15 a.m. Kathy said that as they were driving, two young men ran out from the median in front of her vehicle and she had to slam on her brakes to not hit them with her car. Kathy said both of these men looked to be in their 20s. They were about six feet tall and of medium build, and Kathy could see the one closest to her car in more details because of her headlights. She said he was wearing a bright blue shirt, blue jeans, a thin jacket, and he had dirty, dishwater blonde hair that looked as if it had been cut very badly. Police also heard from a man named Justin Tanksley, who was driving his girlfriend home on Highway 77 between 1 and 1.15 a.m. Tanksley also saw a man in front of Farrell's RV sales. The man was white, about six foot tall, with medium build and dark hair. Justin also recalled something that I think is important. He said he saw two cars parked at the exit where Michelle's car would later be found. One was parked behind the other, and both vehicles had their headlights turned on. And once again, this is at between 1 and 1.15 a.m.
2: He couldn't recall. I know I'm asking you now, like you can go interview him, but he he didn't recall what the second vehicle looked like. He could could see headlights, but couldn't see the color of the vehicle, make, model, nothing. Couldn't see if it was a car or a pickup truck.
1: Listen, keep in mind that the people who are interviewing these witnesses... Are the same people handling this investigation? Okay.
2: And I apologize for people watching. I, th- I think I'm a- probably a little out of frame right now, but I'm sitting back <laughs> I'm writing as fast as she's speaking. So I am I am looking at the camera. I know I'm trying to think of how this is gonna be edited, but I'm like sitting back tonight, kinda but whatever. I'm working here. Let me let me do my thing. All right, keep going. We're good. I'm sorry. But damn, that'd be nice so, to know it was a black right. pickup truck behind it though, right? Right. Do 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 I think
1: that they asked him if he remembered? Maybe he even volunteered the information and they just didn't write it down. I don't know. It seems like something they would ask, right? Like they should be asking that. Yeah. Que-
2: question for you, just just because, again, there's no wrong or right here. We're just throwing out, we're throwing out theories, right? Does this deter you from your theory that there were multiple cars, like one at the top of the hill, one behind her? Like are you still with no, that? No, because
1: as I said, the one on the overpass would have been there to alert the other car down by the exit that Michelle was pulling up. I didn't. I never said that. That third but it car approach the crime me scene. No, I no. <laughs> I said the car would be on the overpass to see her coming. It yep. would alert the other car down at the exit, like with flashing lights. She's on her way. That other car pulls out and and then blocks the way. And then maybe once she's pulled over, they like park behind her or whatever. But once they get her pulled over. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah.
2: But I I don't
1: think that that third car ever approached. No.
2: Yeah. And I would would think it'd be hard. Okay. We don't have to go down that path. I just think it'd be hard for them to see that car from a distance away and be like, oh, here comes Michelle. You know? Listen, you
1: got your peeing theory.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And I have
1: my, you know. Yeah, yeah. I got you. Headlights alerting to her arrival theory. That's
2: fine. like stopping in the road and then after stopping her, letting her go by and then pulling behind her. I got you.
1: Or maybe pulling in front of her.
2: And her just stopping for a car that she doesn't know and pulling well, to the side of the road. Well, maybe they had her
1: out of the car by then and they wanted to pull over to the side of the road because they didn't want to just be sitting in the middle of the exit looking suspicious as
2: hell. So they pulled her car over to the side of the road?
1: So they got her pulled over. How? What do you mean? They blocked the, the exit. Like, so she couldn't get by. So she had to pull over to the curb. You know, and then they get out, get her out of the car, and then they're like, all right, quick, quick, get our our car either in front or behind her so that it just looks like there's two cars chilling here instead of like us blocking the road. And this is going to look suspicious to people driving by. Okay. I don't know. Maybe. All right. But he didn't say it was a police car. I mean, do you think that would have been something he noticed if it was a police car with lights or something?
2: I brought it up because a, Shannon brought it up, and and our viewers brought it up, but also they didn't have this piece of information yet,
1: mm-hmm. and I
2: do think that changes it a little bit as far as because do
1: you think if it was a police car that would have stood out, right?
2: I mean, especially if they Unless had like a, was... a makeshift light, in, like a, a you know a red and blue light or something to kind of indicate that they were law enforcement to make them even pull, make Michelle pull over in the first place.
1: Now, could it have been? a normal civilian's car with one of those lights that they pull out and That's stick on top? That's what I'm saying.
2: Like they called it a cherry.
1: Yeah. They could have been that and then they yeah. took that off.
2: But They could have, know. but then why, you know, it's one of those things where if they put it on and then they take it off, if I'm Michelle, I'm like, oh, this ain't right and I'm taking off again. You know what I mean? Well, it's they like, take it off, you know. After the
1: fact? After.
2: I think whatever happened, happened to Michelle happened fast. I'm just being honest. Yeah, I do I not know. think this was a methodical, played but, out, like, listen, long- the,
1: whole, the whole concept of why she would pull over is very much like. A big question mark. Should it be? Just saying. I don't know. Like I think, I think you're looking at this from the viewpoint of a man. No, you a lot of people in the comments seen, agreed with me. Well, I'm I'm glad for you. They they a would agree with they you. They would it. agree with you if you said the freaking sky was. No, a lot, lot of people said green. they
2: couldn't. They, a lot of people said they couldn't hold it. Maybe she it. It was a, a mile and it.
1: a half away, dude. And her freaking curfew was 1 a.m. Like it was a mile and a half away. There will be, it will be a cold day in hell before I get out of my car in goddamn November, pull down my pants in the wilderness and just let it loose. I've done it. When my, when my house is a mile and a half
2: away. Some people have uh, small bladders, Stephanie, and I think you're judging right now. It's not right.
1: I'm telling you that no Okay, it will never be exposed to the cold and the wilderness. There's ticks. There's ticks out there, man. They jump.
2: Some of us are the one with the wilderness.
1: You shouldn't be as. No, Mm -mm. I'm not. No, maybe if it was like I was I was nowhere near a bathroom and I had no idea when I would be. And it's not like the side of a public highway. Maybe then if there was nothing else I could do. But you know what? I probably do find a cup in my car and use that okay? I'm not going outside at one o'clock in the morning to pee when my house is a mile down the road. That's ludicrous to
2: me. I, I will say this because, again, I'm giving theories as we're going. I will say that based on what's going on with Mark, okay? And I don't think it's any secret here. I think the guy, my opinion, is more than likely involved with this incident, right? And if that's the case and they do know each other, is it more plausible that Somehow there was a plan to meet up near her house on the I ramp wonder. without being too close to the house, so like her, you know, people would see her and them. Yeah, they could have pulled over to the side of the road and and were meeting up there, and maybe he wanted to hook up and she didn't, and things went south. That could explain it as well. She yeah, would but recognize his car. Remember
1: that Leon Lamb said Michelle wanted to spend the night, or he, or she wanted him to drive her home. So if she had a plan to meet up with Mark, why would she do that?
2: <sighs> Shit. Yeah. Why would she do that? And then again, how would how would Mark and his Goombas know that, that she's going to be strolling down the road by herself? Maybe Leon's giving her a ride home. But how do they know she would be alone when they tried to, like, box her in and pull her to the side of the road? Like, there's no cell phones then. So there's no way of knowing. I mean, I hate to say it. But how but- about
1: this? Maybe she does something to Mark, says something, like, threatens him in some way. And he tells her, you better watch yourself but because me and my boys, we're going to get you and you're not going to know when and you're not going to know why, but we're going we're going to get you. And so she was just paranoid in general that he would be like trying to find her or he would be waiting for her. And she that's why she wanted Leon to drive her home or that's why she wanted to stay just because she was like very concerned about this, stressed out about it, paranoid about it.
2: So how would Mark and his his friends know that she's at Leon's and going to be on her way home at that time or well, not? Well, they have wouldn't left have to know
1: that she was at Leon's to know just that, sitting that she there would waiting be...
2: on the side of the highway, hoping well, she's going to come that way and get off the ramp that way.
1: Well, she was out that night, right?
2: She it's could come from any Saturday direction. Night. She could come from any direction, and maybe she's not going to be alone. Maybe she can be with Leon. Maybe she can be with a friend. You know what I mean? This is like, how would they have the the intel for a reasonable period where it's like, hey. We know she's at Leon's right now. She's got to be home by one. We're going to get there around 1245. We're going to grab her when she does.
1: Okay, here's another thing. (laughs) Okay. I feel like Michelle knew something was coming because not only did she ask Leon if she could spend the night or if he could drive her home, but remember she had dropped her friend Lelisha Odaloff at home right before she went to Leon's and she'd asked Lelisha, can I spend the night? Or do you want to spend the night at my house? And Lelisha was like, no, I have to get up early. And then she was like, well, can I spend the night at your house? And Lilicia was like, no, because my room's being painted, so I'm sleeping on the couch. And then where does Michelle go? Not home, which you would think she would have gone if Lilicia had agreed to spend the night. She goes to Leon's. They have sex. And then she asks him if she can spend the night and remember something you told me a few cases ago, well, like maybe it was more than a few cases ago at this point. But you said you had you had many times encountered women in cases who sometimes use sex in a transaction in a transactional manner, like where they were seeking protection or they were seeking some sort of, you know, reciprocation. Maybe Michelle yeah, she's left- used
2: sex as currency to possibly stay there is what maybe, you're maybe.
1: Yeah. Maybe Michelle left Lelisha's. And Lily she said, no, I can't spend the night. She went to Leon's knowing that if they had sex, she could then pose this question like, well, can I stay the night or can you drive me home?
2: Don't you think if all that was going on where if there was some story where she knew something was up because there were some things that had gone on, a woman who was writing all these other minute details in her journal wouldn't have mentioned any of that in her journal?
1: I think that she did. I mean, we know that she didn't mention anything about telling guys she was pregnant. And Well, you know, that makes
2: her look bad. But if somebody... If somebody was actively threatening her...
1: I don't think that she would want anybody to know she was wrapped up with Mark Abbott in that way. She's talking
2: about him. And and if it's him, she's talking... She mentioned him numerous times in the journal entry.
1: She refers to him as Mark, and she mentions him a couple of times, but not in October or November. Okay. So did something go wrong? What happened? She spends the night at his house early in September, and then no mention of him ever again. What happened? Yeah. So I think that she probably knew that somebody could read her her diary if she wasn't there you know it's just a book you open it and so she was very you know careful about what she put in there
2: this is a good point here and i know we're going off the path here so sorry but i all think i think it's all relevant because these are the conversations that would be happening in 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 a murder room right if you're ha- like the detectives would be throwing around scenarios and they'd be debating each other they'd be yelling at each other arguing we've done it where we're all throwing out ser- you know, scenarios and we're poking holes in each other's scenarios and people are passionate about what they believe and they're arguing and they're defending it. Let's just put this out here because there's one thing that's becoming apparent to me. Mark does not look good in this whole situation. We, I think we all acknowledge that. But I will say based on some of the witness testimony about this other guy walking down the road during this time and us not being able to explain how this would all occur and why it would happen and why she would pull over. You
1: mean the the pe- the, the people that like these eyewitnesses saw? These
2: eyewitnesses saw this shaggy blonde guy who was Six walking- Six foot tall, about medium yep. build. Two, kind, of
1: looks like, kind of looks like Mark Abbott.
2: Mark Abbott, but I'm also sure looks like other guys too. Like Matt Abbott? <laughs> oh my God.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it looks like other guys, but also- Kind of like Mark and Matt Abbott. <laughs> yeah, and
2: they more than likely had vehicles. So I don't know why they'd be walking up and down the highway after doing something because like that.
1: Because they were by Feral RV sales lot, right? And remember that dude came yeah. in the next morning and said he found blood in um, one of the the trailers, Is it connected? I don't know. But Farrell's RV lot was very close to where Michelle's car was found. So let's say you do have multiple people with you and multiple vehicles. And you don't want to all be parked on the side of the road. You don't want to all be parked on the side of the road. So you park at the RV lot and then you can quickly and easily walk there.
2: Yeah, the the. This is like a version of the Godfather. Okay, let me let me let me. You're put gonna th- feel
1: so stupid if it comes out that I was right and you and you taunted me about let,
2: it. I'm not taunting you. I'm not taunting you. I do want to put something out there, not only for the qualification, but also because it has become apparent to me, at least. Mark doesn't look good for this. He, I mean, I should say he does look good for this, but I do want to remind everyone because I think it's important. We could be looking at a scenario here where this is so hard for us to kind of compute and put our head around it and how to make these puzzle pieces fit with these different players that we know of. And the reason we're unable to do it is because the person actually responsible has never been identified. Could this be as simple as some man walking along the side of the road, sticking up his thumb and Michelle pulling over to see if he was all right. And when she did, he pulls out a gun and something happens from there. Could it be that simple?
1: I mean, nothing's like impossible, obviously, but I just, I don't, I'm not leaning there. So let's take a break and we'll be right back to finish out the episode. This is our last break. Yay! Yay! Most of you have probably heard me sing the praises of Pros and their truly custom made-to-order hair care. Switching to a custom routine from Pros was definitely one of the best things I've done for my hair. And I will say the results I'm seeing just keep getting better and better. There's been a a long time that my hair and I have had a very love-hate relationship. It's when it's good, it's good. But when it's bad, it's bad. And when it's bad, there's nothing that I can do with it. And I really longed to just have more control over my hair and my relationship with my hair. And since I have been using Prose's customized products, they're customized for me, for my hair needs, and they're personalized to what I need for my hair, I've noticed a huge difference in manageability, which makes my hair more consistent day to day instead of just randomly waking up and and just praying it's going to be a good hair day pros knows that there's more to you than just your hair type. And they've given over 1 million consultations with their in-depth hair quiz, which is how I got started and how you'll get started too. I really enjoy the hair quiz because it asks you questions you wouldn't expect. It asks you stuff about like your eating habits, the damage level of your hair, uh, your exercise, your zip code. And sometimes you're like, why are they asking me these things? This is super personal. But it's not super personal. I mean, it is, but it's for a reason. So for instance, let's say you you live in a very humid climate. You're going to need something that's going to cut down on your frizz, that's going to seal your hair to prevent moisture from getting in and making it frizzy and puffy. And that's why they ask you things like that. And by analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros handpicks clean, sustainably sourced ingredients that get you closer to your hair goals with every wash. And I love that Pros has a review and refine tool. This is going to let me tweak my formula for any reason. Let's say I change my address. So I've moved from New York to Florida which sometimes I feel both of those places are equally as humid, but obviously Florida is more humid, or I move to a very dry climate, my hair formula is going to have to change. It allows me to change if I dye my hair a different color or if I change my diet. And as a carbon-neutral certified B-Core, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon-neutral. And the best part is, if you're not 100% positive that Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back no questions asked. So I love pros. I mean, I know Derek's probably not using it because he doesn't have much hair to work with, but he's going to tell you how you can check it out for yourself if you do.
2: If you have, I guess, some balding. <laughs> Custom made to order hair care from Pros has your name all over it. Take your free in depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Just go to pros.com slash crime weekly. That's P R O S E.com slash crime weekly for your free in depth hair consultation and 15% off.
1: None of these tips or eyewitnesses turned into anything substantial. Of the roughly 10 murders that Scott County had seen during Bill Farrell's time as a sheriff, they'd all been solved within a week. And it seemed as if Farrell maybe thought that Michelle's murder investigation might be going the same way. But as months went by with no arrest and no leads strong enough to make an arrest, and as the community became more restless and concerned, Farrell and his investigators found themselves with no new information, and they had to go back over ground that they'd already covered. On January 6, 1993, Deputy Brenda Schwitz and Trooper Donna Windham interviewed Michelle's friend, Lelisha O'Dell, again. Lelisha was asked to try and remember any incident between Michelle and anyone else that may have gone bad, such as someone she'd broken up with or rejected, someone who might have had an axe to grind with her. And Lelisha remembered the night of the Halloween party that she, Michelle, and Chantal Kreider had gone to at January Orly's trailer. And she mentioned someone named Todd Mayberry. Lalicia said, quote, Michelle was drunk and kissing Todd, but when she sobered up, she told him to get lost. He went crazy. He called her a bitch and a slut and told her he would beat up every boyfriend she ever had, end quote. For some reason, Todd Mayberry was not interviewed until February 1st, almost a month after Lalisha revealed this information. And he claimed that although he knew Michelle, they had gone to the same school and he was two years ahead of her. He had not actually interacted with her until the night of that Halloween party. And that had been the last time he'd seen her. He said, quote, we were drinking together and kissing and she suddenly got up and said she had to go home. I didn't shout at her. End quote. Now, it's worth mentioning that although Michelle did talk about kissing Todd Mayberry at the party in her diary, she never did write about him calling her names or yelling at her. Once again, as we mentioned earlier, does that mean it didn't happen or does that mean that she wouldn't want somebody to know that it had happened if they read her diary? Is Lelisha imagining things? Did Michelle tell her the story in a dramatic way so Alicia thought that happened? Or is... You know, did it actually happen and Todd Mayberry's lying? I don't know. Mayberry said that after the party, he never tried to contact Michelle again. And on the night of her death, he'd been at a party at Jason Grogan's. Todd Mayberry did give a blood sample. He ended up being type B. But because the partial DNA sample that the FBI had didn't match Todd Mayberry, he was excluded as a suspect. In February of 1993, it seemed that law enforcement had absolutely nothing. So it came as a bit of surprise when just two months later, on April 7th, an arrest was made in the case. And the person in cuffs was not even from Benton. He wasn't from Sykeston or technically Cape Garrido. He lived in Kankakee, Illinois. Josh Keezer was born in Kankakee on February 16, 1975, to his parents, Charles Edward Keezer and Bessie Joan James, also known as Joni. According to Josh in the book, The Murder of Angela Michelle Lawless, quote, My father was an alcoholic and drug addict. He was really rough, to put it politely. He had a rough childhood. He brought back demons from Vietnam. He had PTSD and he never quite adjusted. He only overcame his alcoholism late in life. When drunk, my father was Hyde. When sober, he was Jekyll. My father was physically abusive. My mother was emotionally abusive. Both my parents were what I would call difficult people. They took no shit from anyone and were proud of it. They reminded me of a line from an Eminem song. Maybe that's what happens when a tornado meets a volcano. End quote. Josh's parents would divorce when he was still quite young, and when Josh was in the fifth grade, he and his mother moved to Arbor, a little town in southeast Missouri in Cape Girardeau County, where Joni's parents were originally from. Josh said his mother was taking him home to his roots, but it didn't really feel like home, and it was a far cry from the more populated and busy Kankakee where he had spent his whole life. In his book, Josh says, quote, I thought of myself as a kid from a relatively big city in the north. Then I was all of a sudden in a tiny town in the South, and I flunked sixth grade. Up to that year, I got all A's and B's, end quote. Josh would have to repeat 6th grade when he and his mother moved again, this time to Cape Girardeau, and things seemed to even out for him for a time. He did well academically, he was involved in sports, and actually he set a 20-year record at Hawthorne School for the 600-yard dash. Josh finally began to feel like he belonged somewhere. He had a group of friends, and he dreamed of one day being in the Olympics. And even when his mother moved them again to Jackson, a town on the outskirts of Cape Girardeau, after Josh finished the 8th grade, he seemed to transition well gaining more friends and joining the wrestling team. Sadly, in 1991, Josh's mother, Joni, had to join a 30-day rehab program for substance abuse, and Josh was pulled from his school and his friends again when he lived with friends of his mother's for a short time. Now, Josh tried to continue going to the same school for a while, but he was discovered by the principal, and Josh explains this happening, saying, quote, when we got to his office, he gave me a choice, quit or I'll kick you out. I said, I'll never forget this. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to find myself sleeping under a bridge a year from now. So he kicked me out and he wrote down that I quit. I was getting A's, B's, and C's and he kicked me out, end quote. When his mother was done with rehab, Josh moved back in with her, which is when he found himself in trouble with the law, but just for some minor issues, such as punching a kid in the mouth who verbally insulted his mother. Josh's probation officer suggested to Joni that Josh return to Kankiki to live with his father, Charlie, And Josh said that his father at that time wanted him to enroll in school again. But at this point, Josh really didn't see the benefit in that. He said he was already a year behind due to having to repeat the sixth grade. He was also behind because he'd been, you know, kicked out of school and he had just lost too much time. He had no desire to be the new kid in school one more time. Josh tried to get a job during this period and. While he did try to find a job, which was not an easy task, he hung out with his cousin James and together they, I don't know, had a great time basically drinking, smoking weed, being teenagers. James was in like a band and so they jam out and stuff, you know, normal teenager stuff. By February of 1992, Josh's mother, Joni, seemed to be doing well. She was regularly going to AA meetings, putting her life back on track. And so in early February, right before he turned 17, Josh returned to Cape Girardeau, But he didn't move in with his mother uh, for for a couple of reasons. And Josh said, quote, I didn't like her live-in boyfriend, and he didn't like me. He was violent, and he mistreated her. He knew I would hurt him if I saw him hurt her. My mother arranged for me to stay with some friends of hers, but after a few weeks the friends decided I was a bad influence on their younger child and they kicked me out. The truth is they were overwhelmed with the teenage boy. They weren't prepared to have lived with them, end quote. So Josh ended up renting a basement apartment from a local family he knew, but he ended up arguing with them when he found out that they had broken into his apartment and gone through some of his things, including a chest that his mother had given him. So Josh left. He returned with his mother and the police, but the family who owned the house told the cops that everything in their house was theirs and Josh was no longer welcome there. For the next several months, Josh didn't really have a place to live, and he couldn't keep a job for very long. And it was during this low point that Josh met some unsavory characters, and some of these acquaintances would come back to haunt him. Honestly, not long after. In his book, Josh said, quote, I drank alcohol and experimented with drugs. I stayed with boys and girls I met, sleeping on couches or in their basements. Sometimes their parents knew I was in the house and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes I slept in abandoned houses, at laundromats, in apartment complexes, or in friends' cars. I slept in hospital waiting rooms. At times I slept outside, in the park, or under the bridge on the river. Most of the time I didn't sleep much at all. End quote. However, even though Josh was living a little bit on the wild side, he had no real record with law enforcement at this point. In September, two months before Michelle Lawless was murdered, Josh left the area again and moved back to Kankakee, where he found himself in a gang called the Latin Kings. I think this is like a pretty well-known gang. Am I wrong? You were in law enforcement.
2: Yeah, Latin Kings are, I would say Latin Kings, Bloods, Crips, probably the three most known, like, street gangs. And then obviously you have, like, A lot of motorcycle gangs, but yeah, Latin Kings is very well known.
1: Okay. So this was actually a gang that um, his, his two of his older cousins um, were also members of. And these two older cousins had found themselves in trouble with the law and they had served time in prison. Now, Josh says he wasn't a core member of the group. He said, quote, I was one of those on the fringes. I got the gang's crown tattoo on my back, but my cousins protected me from the most violent parts of gang life. I didn't have a violent initiation and I wasn't involved in serious crimes. Gang members." Gave me a sense of belonging and a self confidence I never had before. I was somebody to be feared, not just for myself, but also for the gang that would stand with me and fight. I was good with my hands. I liked to fight, so why not fight with the kings? End quote. Josh's passion and skill for fighting would illustrate itself when he got into it with his father, who was unhappy about his gang membership and who had started trying to discipline Josh for small things he would do at home to sort of keep him in control. One night, Josh had taken his corded phone into his bedroom and closed the door so he could talk to a girl in private. And this was something his father, Charlie, had asked him multiple times not to do. So Charlie busted into the bedroom, yelling at Josh to keep the phone cord out of the door. And Josh retorted back that it was his phone and he told his father fuck you which led to a scuffle charlie punched josh in the mouth they wrestled around the room smashed into walls and then things escalated Josh explains this in his book, saying, quote, "...at one point my father had me bent over with my right arm pinned behind me, yelling through my tears, please stop, I'm sorry, but I didn't stop. Instead, I reached with my left hand and grabbed a large porcelain sculpture that I shattered right on his knee. At that point, my father let me go. Looking back on it, I was wrong. He was doing the best he could, and I didn't make it easy on him. I still feel bad about it." End quote. But there was no feeling bad at that time because Charlie's girlfriend had called the police and his father wanted Josh arrested. Luckily, the officers who responded were able to see the gray areas of this particular situation and Josh was not arrested. Instead, they asked him if there was someplace else that he could stay, and he ended up moving in with his aunt Kathy and his cousin James. Josh would be arrested once in the town of Bourbonnais while he was out drinking with friends. He claims that he and his friends were at an apartment complex, and then a girl and some guys she was with began threatening his friends, and the girl spit in Josh's face, and he said, quote, There was some shouting and shoving, and the girl was doing most of it. Somebody called the police, and the girl and her friends claimed I shoved her, I told the cops all I did was push the girl away when she attacked me, but they didn't believe me because I was in a gang. They arrested me on a juvenile charge of assault and took a mugshot, but I was released before the end of the day. End quote. In November of 1992, when Josh was 17, this is the same month that Michelle Lawless is murdered, he realized that he might want a different life for himself. He was actually doing all right at that time. He was living in an apartment with some friends. He had a stable job at Wendy's and he'd pulled away from the Latin Kings. And at this time, Josh spoke with an army recruiter, believing that he'd gone through enough in his life that he had what it took to be in the military. Unfortunately. The recruiter told Josh and some of his other friends who were in the Kings, who also wanted out, they were not what the Army was looking for. Um, the, the recruiter apparently cited their lack of education as a reason, but Josh and his father suspected it was their gang membership that painted them as not being Army material. Josh's effort to set his life straight, however, did make his father, Charlie, proud, and their relationship began to improve. Josh's relationship with his mother was getting better as well, and he spent some time with her during Christmas of 1992 in Cape Garrido. While there, Josh reunited with some old friends that he used to run with back when his life was not so together. And it doesn't necessarily seem that this was a choice for Josh to remain in Cape Garrido because Josh didn't have a driver's license or a car. And he had to pay a friend to drive him there. And the friend just left town without letting him know. This basically left Josh stranded. Now, at this time, Josh met back up with an old acquaintance, a man named Kelly Church. And Kelly took Josh to a party at the home of Stacy Reed. And Josh already knew Stacy because he dated her years before, I believe, back when they were in like grade school. Um, two other people Josh knew from the old days were also at this party, Chuck Weisinger and Sean Mangus. And these names will come back up in our story. Story. in late January of 1993 while law enforcement officials were trying to track down Michelle Lawless's killer Josh had an interaction with the law after a police responded to a report of a man lurking around a house with a gun this man was Josh and the gun was a BB gun he was just playing around with some friends but when he saw the police pull up Josh ran into the house because he was afraid the police officer would confiscate Josh's BB gun but no further action was taken however Josh still had to face a judge for his arrest from that fight outside of the apartment complex in Kankakee. The judge agreed to let Josh plead guilty to this charge and gave him a deal. Josh would have to leave the Latin Kings completely and take part in something called the Teen Challenge, which was a Christian residential program for troubled teens in the Cape Girardeau area. Now, the plan would be for Josh to be processed in Cape and then sent to the program's facility in St. Louis for a year. And according to Josh, he was on board for this until he became triggered when the husband or brother of the teacher who'd gotten him kicked out of school in Jackson was assigned to walk him through the facility. Josh said this like brought back old trauma and he left the day after he was admitted. Josh tried to go back home to his mother, but she wouldn't take him in, um, partly because he'd left the program. And Josh also believes that she was scared of her abusive boyfriend who made it clear he didn't want Josh back. Next, he reached out to his father in Kankakee, but Charlie also said that Josh could not come home to him. And Charlie decided instead to return Josh to the Cheen Challenge facility in St. Louis. Josh tried to tough it out there but ended up leaving again and taking a bus back to Kankakee where Charlie agreed to let him stay if he stopped his affiliation with the Latin Kings once and for all and got a job. So Josh started working at the local Kmart and he was putting things in place to get his GED. He and his father were on much better terms. And in February of 1993, Josh was ready to celebrate his 18th birthday in Kankakee. He didn't know that as he focused on pulling himself up and getting on the right path, There was a plot going on in the Cape Girardeau County Jail amongst men he believed at one time to be his friends. On February 27th, Trooper Don Windham got a call from a deputy at the jail saying he had some inmates who claimed to have information about the Michelle Lawless case. These inmates, who all knew each other and who all knew Josh, were Sean Mangus, Chuck Weisinger, Kelly Church, and Steve Graw, and they would claim that they had heard Josh Kieser confess to murdering Michelle. This would set off a domino effect of events that would end with Josh facing a 60-year prison sentence for a murder he did not commit of a girl who he had never even met. It's
2: amazing they were able to uh, find out who this guy was, how he was connected to this, get him charged. I'm really interested to hear how they got there because Mm -hmm. as you just said right now, he was charged and convicted. So not only did the police department put together a case, but clearly the jury bought it. So I'm interested to hear how we got here, how we got to a guy who is now innocent of this crime as we sit here today, but got a 60-year prison sentence. How do we get there when there are other people that as we sit here have not been cleared? Do not have an alibi do not have exculpatory evidence linked to them
1: and if you look at it in november of 1992 when michelle was killed josh was living in kankiki which was 300 miles away from benton missouri and he didn't have a car or a license yeah
2: so that's why i'm interested to see how they got there because yeah. obviously they didn't just go in there and say we're charging him because yeah. so i'm interested to see what narrative that they what, what narrative they painted so to convince a jury Of this, that he was responsible for this crime. Because I'm not saying the story's true. Clearly it's not. But there's clearly a narrative that they presented that was believable enough for this jury. I'm sure there was a lot of lying, a lot of misrepresentations, a lot of falsifying documents, whatever you're going to tell me to get to this point. Because you would have to do some serious shit to go from a guy who's never met this woman before, doesn't have a car, to him being found guilty by a jury of supposedly his peers. So it's a big jump.
1: So we're going to talk about that next episode, right? But before we leave, do you be- do you believe that his membership in the Latin Kings sort of made him an easy target to pin a murder on? Of course, because you course. hear, like, as a jury member, the
2: Latin Kings are a very dangerous gang. Right? Like, because when I read that, I was violent. like, yeah, yeah. When
1: I read that, I was like, damn, the Latin Kings. Like, yeah. that's legit. You know, like, I don't know about all the street gangs out there, but I yeah. know about the Latin Kings. So. If you hear that as a jury member and you may be biased into thinking that, you know, every, every gang member is just a violent predator waiting to kill somebody, it might be easy for you to overlook other facts, I guess. Yeah,
2: of course. You know, I guess if the more you learn about gangs, though, and I've said this about prison as well, where you have these street gangs. I'm not saying they're good people, but I will say there is a code. And in some situations, women and children are kind of off limits. And in fact, the Latin Kings in the prisons, if they find out that you're someone who harmed a child, you don't usually last very long with those types of gangs. You know, that's, that's where they draw the line. So, yeah, I can see how him being a someone affiliated with a, with a violent gang like the Latin Kings and then also having some of his own run-ins, right? A couple, but nothing serious. Nothing serious, but some, right. it, it made it easier to put it on him and... I don't know. I don't want to speculate too much, but I'm sure he was brought in. And, you know, I don't I don't even know. I don't know where this story is going to go. How we got from a guy who had never met our victim before to being charged and convicted of her murder that I want to see how we get there. What steps occurred to get us there? Were there any missteps by by Josh as far as like, you know, was he brought in to be questioned and didn't know his rights. And again, this is, I'm totally guessing here. I don't know. But I mean, what, what happened where he maybe said or did something where they're like, ah, we got him, you know, or if there even was anything like that.
1: I'm wondering like as a, as a former police officer, how much weight do like jailhouse informants carry? Really?
2: Uh, Jailhouse informants saved my life. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it depends on the circumstance. I had a hit put on me, and, and it was a jailhouse informant who saved me and my yeah, family. Yeah, I remember the story. Yeah. So I, I guess it all depends, right? Like I think there are there are times where jailhouse informants are doing it uh, to in, in return getting a less a lesser sentence for themselves. Mm-hmm. There's some incentive, right? Yeah. Um, with my particular case, the person didn't want anything. They wrote a letter to the the correctional officer, said get this to Derek Lavasser. They just didn't want it. I had I had arrested them in the past, but when I did, I was according to them, respectful and did it in a way where they didn't feel like they knew I was just doing my job. Mm-hmm. And they always they always appreciated that. And we had never spoken after that. But when something happened in the prison, they heard my name, they gave me a heads up. So I think you have to evaluate each individual and what their motive is behind it. And also if they say, for example, you know, I was with so-and-so and they admitted to killing this person. Well, you got to be able to verify that they would have in fact been with this person at this time when they're saying they were. And they would have had a relationship where it's imaginable that this person would confide in them and tell them this type of information, um, and then also see what they're in there for. Because if they got life in prison, they may just be bored. So there's, I think there's a lot of lot of different things that you have to evaluate to decide whether or not it's uh, reliable. It's reliable. But I will say, just based on your your hint that I'm assuming someone in prison said that Josh admitted to killing Michelle to him.
1: Yeah, like and, more than one person, right? And I'm, I'm but assuming, they all were like it seemed like seemed like an orchestrated.
2: Well, yeah, we got to dive into it. We got to yep. dive into that because that's yep. interesting. I don't know why yeah. they would, but maybe I'm assuming Josh has an opinion on that. So it'll be interesting to hear all of that, and it'll also be interesting to hear these individuals. Like, did they give something that would be considered guilt knowledge, like something that wasn't known to the public? I don't, I would assume not. I um, would say
1: no. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, I think I think it was, obviously we're going to dive into Josh more because this is where, even if it's not, let's just say for for this part right now, it's not malicious, which it appears it probably was, but it was just negligent police work where they're now completely focused on Josh and maybe not focusing on others who could potentially be good for this crime. So not only are they going after an innocent man, but in the process, they're letting go the actual offender. That person is able to escape and go on throughout their life to this day because they got they got focused on one guy, and the wrong guy.
1: Okay, so we will get into that next week. Everybody, leave, if you're watching on YouTube, leave your comments. Let us know what you think about this case so far. And other than that, if you're just listening and you haven't followed us on YouTube yet, go ahead and do that. Follow us on social media, Crime Weekly Pod. And don't forget to check out Criminal Coffee Company, because are we still running the sale or no?
2: No, by the time this comes out, sale is over, but we had... I, I don't know. Hundreds and hundreds of people use the code, so thank you for that. That was all, we we sold a ton of coffee to the point where I'm running around to order more. Great job! But
1: I I will say, if you're going to be in CrimeCon this month, we are going to be running another sale for people who are at CrimeCon, and we might have a little surprise for you at CrimeCon, so that you can try Criminal Coffee for yourself in person. So don't forget to stop over to our booth on Podcast Row. So you can find out what's going on.
2: Right. Even if they're not at CrimeCon, I know a lot of people have DM'd me and DM the Crime Weekly page where they're saying, "Hey, I'm in Florida. Are you having any meetups?" And we're probably going to do something, and it, mm-hmm. it most likely will be at the resort. The kind of the we don't really have a car; we're driving around. So more than likely, it'll be one of the establishments there. But just keep an eye on our social media, Crime Weekly, and uh, if we're going to do like a meetup, we'll we'll post it there. So if you're someone who doesn't, can't make the crime con event for whatever reason, but just want to hang out for a couple hours, we will probably be somewhere in town in Orlando.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I, I told people, cause I've got messages too, to just keep an eye on our social media. So this yeah. is another reason to follow crime weekly, especially yeah. on Instagram. We'll
2: post it on there for sure. We'll
1: post it on there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. If we're going to do a meetup, cause we didn't do like a formal one this year where it's like, Hey, you bought a pass. Mm-hmm. So you get to come. We're, we're just doing it where it's like, Hey, we're at this public place. free for all, man. Yeah. If you want to show up, show up we'll be there from you know for these hours feels
1: dangerous now that we say it like that
2: yeah i mean it's not probably the smartest thing to do okay she said it best i don't have to repeat everything everyone have a good night stay safe out there see you next week
1: bye